Well, within the book of Romans, chapter 8, the Apostle Paul, the author of that book, gives commentary on the effects of what you and I, if you were here in the last couple of weeks, what you and I would have read and heard about from Genesis 3. What Paul does in Romans chapter 8 is he gives commentary or fleshes out some of the teaching and the reality of some of the teaching that we have in Genesis 3. Look there again from what was just read at Romans chapter 8 verse 20. It says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. So today I want to continue preaching through the book of Genesis by turning your attention to the book of Romans, chapter 8. And I want, I want to hover around a couple of verses and then go to other passages in Scripture and speak from those other verses in the Bible. This is a little bit different than what we normally do. If you're here for any amount of time, what the, the way that I try to preach is what is called expositional or expository preaching, where we want to plumb the depths of a particular verse or passage or chapter and get all of it out of what we can. This is going to be more theological in nature. So we're going to hover here and go here, and and what theology does or what doctrinal uh, pursuits do is they take common teachings from the scriptures and pull them down in order to identify them in a certain way. So I want to be honest with you. Part of this is biographical in nature. Um, I've been feeling for like five years, so even before the time that I've come here, I've been feeling bit by bit like I've been dying on the inside, like a, like a tree becoming more hollow. Uh, even as recent as this winter and spring, from January to April, I was truly just walking around like a fog, emotionless, felt nothing, wanted to feel nothing, completely dry, detached really from everything. And if, if you're honest, I say that, and if you're honest, a lot of you feel this way too. Just embracing the misery of life. And how do you make sense of it? The Bible talks about undeserving people being given everything. Joy, contentment, light, beauty, hope. And yet, we feel like creation subjected to futility. How do we make sense of the reality and the truth that God is completely sovereign, completely sovereign? I don't mean a a little sovereign, like he's the most powerful person out there, though he is. I mean sovereign in such a way that all of everything hangs in the balance of his own grip. Nothing happens outside of his desire or permission It's encouraging, and it's haunting. Nothing happens outside of his providence, meaning his purposeful sovereignty, his will being carried out. No accident. Nothing. Your cancer, your parent cheating on your parent, a judge ruining your family, being fired, losing a job, being friendless, having your child dying, life-changing or life-ending illness, harsh reality, nothing biblically, nothing happens outside of God's purposeful sovereignty. Nothing. How do we make sense of the misery of this life? Or another question, why would a loving God allow it? 
Why would he subject his creation to futility? Or according to Romans 8, how would he subject his creation to suffering? Now, my aim this morning is to speak to you from the Word because you are either in this muck right now or you've endured this before. I also want to speak to you because you certainly will face the awfulness of life. You think of six million people in the 30s and 40s dying because of one man's grip. You think of 250,000 people being swept away in a tsunami in Asia in 2004. You think of 3,000 people dying seemingly instantly on 9-11. Think of the reality that 60 million people every year die. One Mississippi, two Mississippi. It's four dead people. Now you and I, I think in some ways, handle a 9-11, a tsunami, the reality of death, far easier than we handle our own baby dying or our dad dying or our friend leaving or the physical pain that we will not wake up tomorrow like we did today. Why so much pain in this world? Why so much misery? I want to help us understand how the Bible addresses that. Because if we, if we know why, if we, if, we have a, if we have an understanding, a theology, you will, of this, I think it helps us to carry on, to worship the one who's in control of everything, to know God better, and to just understand his creation according to his plan. So why so much pain in the world? I want to do this by addressing what I'm going to call two bad questions. I want to bring these up. Knock them down, because people bring this up all the time. And the Bible is clear why they are fleshly, common questions, answers, but wrong. So, Christian, why does, why does God now, why does God now subject his own creation to futility, pain, sorrow, and misery? Why does a loving God will his creation to endure hardship. Now, two bad questions that we'll start with. First one is, is God not in control? It's a bad question, but let's speak to it. Some will say that this kind of world, with all of its suffering, pain, and death, exists because God is not in control. He's not in control. He's not in control. They, they are, what is happening is like mindless, natural forces, demonic powers, or even human self-determination playing itself out. Millions of people believe it. Billions of people believe this, but it's not true. It's not biblical. Turn in your Bible to the book of Matthew, chapter 10. Matthew, chapter 10. If you're unused to the Bible and you're in Romans, turn left. A couple of books, Matthew, chapter 10. The chapter number is the big numbers on a page, and the verse numbers are the little numbers. Turn to Matthew, chapter 10, verse 29. Matthew 10, verse 29. Are there not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. Now, what in the world is Jesus talking about here? Well, he's using this device, these sparrows who are being fed or being sold. 
He's using this first world or first century way of looking at truly the most insignificant random event in the world. A sparrow on a limb in the forest. And can even play it out to where there are sparrows being birthed and dying. And it's not random. He, he is saying that, that every insignificant and significant thing are held in his grip. And when God says, sparrow, your time's up, that's God saying your time is up. And the fact that God does that every second of every day by the millions is no stretch on his mind or his ability. If you don't think that, you don't know God. God, in the scriptures, is shown to us as someone who is infinite, not controlled by anything else. He cannot be stressed. He cannot be stretched, no matter how many sparrows there are, no how many people there are, no matter how many rivers there are. Turn over maybe a couple of pages to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, verse 27, where it says, Matthew chapter, Matthew chapter 8, verse 27. The men marveled, after Jesus did something remarkable, the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? Even the winds. This is the disciples responding to Jesus. Even the winds of the sea obey his very words. And that is amazing. His command starts and stops things. And in this world, what you would have seen the past couple of weeks in Puerto Rico, what you could have recently seen in Bangladesh, what you would have seen 15 years ago in New Orleans, every time you hear of a hurricane, a monsoon, encounter a tornado hear about a tsunami, you've got a choice. You can believe that the winds and the waves obey him, or they don't. If the wind and waves of the sea don't obey Jesus, then in the 1973 Enid floods, or in the 2004 Asian tsunami, or even whatever happens in 2022, if the waves of the sea don't obey Jesus, then you have a God who is not God. Someone who loses something. A loser. Unless, well, the Bible says it's right. Now, you've got a choice here. It, it is not a true answer to say that anyone dies by wind or waves because God couldn't stop it. Like you saw this raging power moving through the sea. The sea that it says he controls. And he could have said, like Jesus said over in the Sea of Galilee, stop. And it would have stopped. He can stop tsunamis. He has stopped them. He will stop them. And he chooses not to stop them. In Proverbs chapter 6, verse 33, it kind of brings up language of gambling uh, or casting your lots or betting on things. And to sum it up, it's not, a, it's not a biblical answer to the question, why do some people win when gambling? It's not a biblical answer to say, well, it's random, or they got lucky. It's not random. No one's lucky. God decides everything. Which card, which die is facing up, where the ball stops, God decides everything, or he's not God. In the book of Lamentations, it says in chapter 3, verse 37, who has spoken, and it came to pass, 
unless the Lord has commanded it. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it. It's not from the mouth of the Most High. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Now here, the the author was talking about the, the sacking of Jerusalem by the Babylonians with all of their horror pouring out. And friends, with this kind of understanding, you need to understand, you need to grasp that God governs the world with an all-aggressive, all-permeating, detailed providence. Nothing is outside of his rule. He is not random. He is not aimless. He is not reckless. Everything he does, he does on his own will and for his own purposes. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 10 says, My counsel will stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. Or in the New American Standard, it says, All my pleasure. I'll accomplish everything I want. What God does is fulfill his pleasure. And when you are infinitely wise, when you're an all-knowing, all-powerful God, to use the word permit for what you... For what you do is to say and mean that you permit by plan. So God permits by his plan, permitting by design. Because you know everything leading up to an event, you know everything flowing from it, and if that event is something that you reject or don't will to happen, you stop it. Everything God permits, he permits by design, by plan. The the permission by the all-knowing, all-wise God is by his purpose. So question one is wrong. Is God not in control? God is very much in control. Friends, just as an aside, this is, this is why you pray to God and no one else. I'm not going to pray to you guys to help me out or figure me out or help my marriage or help my kid. You're not in charge. You're as worthless as I am. Why do we pray to God if he's not in full control? Now, second Second bad question, this one a little bit shorter, is God evil and unjust? People say this world exists because God is evil and unjust, a a spiteful deity ruling over the universe. Terrifying prospect. Listen to what his word says in John chapter 1. Turn over to John chapter 1. It's far right in the Bible, just before the end. John chapter 1. I'm sorry, I don't know what I just said. 1 John Chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1, 1 John 1, to quote our Anglicans, Anglican friends. 1 John 1, verse 5. Is God evil and unjust? 1 John 1, 5. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness, at all. No darkness at all. There's no dark corner in God's mind. Turn over to Psalm chapter 92, the book of Psalms. Psalm 92. Getting all of your Bible drill out for the week, flipping your pages. Psalm 92 verse 12. Psalm 92 verse 12. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. 
They're planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. Typically not a way to describe older saints as having a life that is full of sap and green. Why are we given this image of who God's people are? Well, it says in verse 15, to declare that the Lord is upright, that He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in Him. It's not a good question. It's not a good answer that God is unjust. No part of Him is unjust. No part of Him is evil. Saying so is, in my opinion, sophomoric, remarkably conceited, small-minded, to the reality of the world. The Lord is upright, and there is no unrighteousness in Him. There is no darkness in any part of His nature. So how do we make sense of a world that was subjected to futility? I want to give you four things to understand. Four things to understand. And these four things I'm calling you to understand, I'm asking you to understand, will build off of each other. So two builds off one, three builds off two. It's a theology, if you will, or an understanding of why God has subjected his own creation to futility. And together they form a whole or a worldview that is radical given the world that we live in. I'm going to go on a limb and say that this is a unique set of statements in our world, in modern-day evangelicalism, just because of how people try to or want to understand these very things. You'll have a harder time understanding these the more you find yourself, the more you find your will, the more you find your own glory as the center plan of the universe. Hard pill to swallow, but the more you think about yourself in any category of life, these will be harder things for you to understand. Some of you have never heard things like this before. You've most likely been told the phrase. Instead, you've most likely been told the phrase, it's going to be okay. Why is the world happening the way it is? It's going to be okay. Or it all works out in the end. Or when God closes a door, he opens up a window. It's junk theology. It's offensive because when your baby dies in your arms, is it going to be okay? When your dad tells you they no longer love your mom, does it all work out in the end? You're told you're going to lose your memory, and you won't know who you are for the rest of your life. Well, when God closes a door, he opens up a window. Friends, get out of here with that. That is so, so, church word, silly. In Genesis 3, I caught myself, Adam was told his life would be miserable. Adam was told his life would be miserable, and he would die. Had everything. Now he's going to die. Going to the Bible tells us true things, and in this case, hopefully things you can you can continue to live by. And I imagine, I want to give you a picture of, of you, your life. You're like a small boat in a massive ocean that is unrelenting in its waves. And biblical truth gives you a deep-rooted ballast. When you're being tossed, when you're being flipped around, what the Word does and what I aim to do every Sunday and in my own time, 
at my own house is to pour into myself biblical truth in such a way that it builds a stronger, sturdier ballast that, that weighs us down when the waves come. So today's next four things are, are heavy to me, at least, and I've been living in them. And if you want more info, I want to recommend John Piper's newest giant book called Providence. It is like 700 pages, and it is very good. But nevertheless, may the, may the truth of God's word ground you, weigh you, as the winds of time are blowing, or as one 500-year-old hymn says, as the sands of time are sinking. Now first, I want you to understand God planned redemption. First thing I want you to understand is God planned redemption. This kind of world exists because God planned a history of redemption before the world existed. This kind of world exists because God planned a history of redemption before the world ever existed. And then, according to that plan of redemption, according to that plan, he permitted sin, death, and misery to enter the world in order to set the stage for the fullness of his redemptive purposes. This is a tough pill to swallow, but true. Turn to... 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Second Timothy chapter 1, sin, death, misery, enter the world according to God's plan of redemption. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 9 says, Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which gave us in Christ Jesus, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Purpose and grace, undeserved favor, ill-deserved favor was given to us, according to this passage, before God created the universe. (coughs) That's what the text says. That... That God's blood-bought grace in Christ Jesus was determined before he created the world. Before, Before blood was made, it was determined. He meant to save a world in which this would happen. Therefore, he ordained that sin exist. It didn't just creep up on the stage and he go, wait, whoa, what's that? Now, one theological sentence that's hard to grasp is that God doesn't sin by willingly or allowing sin to exist. God doesn't sin by allowing sin to be or to exist. Without that, without that understanding, God doesn't sin by allowing sin to exist. Without that understanding, friends, it is difficult. It would be difficult for you to ever make sense of the Bible. It it would be difficult for you to ever make sense of 
your life. So the first thing I want you to understand, in 2022, we receive grace upon grace in the forgiveness of our sins and hope of eternal life. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, it says that grace comes to us because God gave it to us in Christ Jesus before he made the world. Therefore, the world by which that can happen was planned. Now, number two, second thing I want you to understand, <coughs> I want you to understand his purpose in subjection. Understand, secondly, his purpose in subjection. So the first one, there is a plan. The second one, understand the purpose. This kind of world exists because God subjected the natural world to futility in hope. He subjected the natural world to futility in hope. So God put the natural world under a curse. We read that in Genesis 3. We feel that every day. Satan is cursed. The woman is impacted by the curse. The man is impacted by the curse. This world came crashing down in Genesis 3. And God did it. In other words, natural evil, the physical horrors of the world, are like parables or pictures of the horrors of moral evil. Natural evil are parables or pictures of moral evil. Natural evil, physical suffering, it exists to us like a, like a flag, a siren, a calling. It exists like a parable or a siren of the dangers of moral evil. Physical suffering exists to show the outrageousness of our sin against a holy God. The tsunami, the brokenness, the betrayal, it's just, a, it's just a picture, just a subtle picture of the effect of moral evil inside of man's heart. Now, take a step back from this. You are just fine to ask yourself. It's worth asking, why does God make physical suffering the consequence of moral evil? Why does God make physical suffering the consequence of moral evil? That's a good question. The essence, you need to understand in answering that, the essence of sin, sin, the essence of sin is not physical. So understand your moral implication of sin, your sin, it's not physical. It's, it's not the movement of the muscle. It's not the touching of the flesh. The essence of sin is, we saw this with Adam and Eve. In the heart of Adam and Eve, before they did anything with their hands, <coughs> before they tasted anything with their lips, their hearts displayed a lack of trust of God to provide for them what he determined to provide for them. It's as if their hearts said, God, I don't trust you. I think I know what's best for me, and I reject what you think is best for me. I reject you. I vote for me. I'll decide what's best for me. My truth is my righteousness. And that's the beginning of an essence of sin. No muscle is moved. It was treason of the heart, a moral blow to the face of the infinitely holy God, and as such, it merits horrible physical misery. Now, keep your head in the book of Romans, or turn back there. It wasn't Adam who subjected the world to futility. It wasn't Adam who subjected the world to futility. 
because we have the phrase there, in hope. Not just to futility, but to futility in hope. It's the, the key phrase to understanding this, this passage, this section, this theology. From, from you and I, also, it keeps us from just jumping off a cliff. That there's hope there. If that phrase, in hope, wasn't there, you'd think Adam subjected the world to futility. Or maybe Satan subjected the world to futility. He did it, but the word, he subjected the world to futility in hope, can only, that noun there can only be God. Look at the passage in full, verse 18. <clears throat> for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation awaits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for hope, uh, for who hopes what he can see, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience." Now, when Adam and Eve sinned morally in their hearts, smacked God across the face and voted themselves as supreme in their own life, God touched the physical reality with a curse. Why? By its nature, sin, by its nature, sin blinds us from the seriousness of our own sin. The very nature of sin, the way it operates, it blinds us even from the very outrage or seriousness of our sin. Sin doesn't see the outrage of slapping infinite holiness in the face. It's no big deal, sin will say. Sin doesn't feel outrage at sin. Sin doesn't hate sin. That's its nature. What can sin feel, though? What can a hard heart feel? What can a, what can a sinful heart feel? Broken bones. Cancer. Loss. Betrayal physical despair, death. You can feel that, can't you? The message gets through to the soul about the seriousness of sin through physical suffering. Think of it this way. You have a holy God and an unbelieving person. Unbelievers don't lie awake at night wrestling with the outrage of their indifference to God. Unbelievers don't lie awake at night wrestling with the outrage of their indifference to God. Who does that? Think about, think about the unbelievers in the city. Do you honestly think they're spending all their day working and then they sit in their beds at night in total turmoil or fretting over their indifference to their sin against the holy God? No. But if you touch their body, The rage. How dare you touch me? Pain is the alarm. Our pain is the trumpet of the outrage of the evil of sin. Pain is the alarm or the trumpet of the outrage of the evil of sin. Now, crucial clarification. 
I am not saying that every pain on a person corresponds to a specific sin in that person. I am not saying that. Certainly not true biblically. In John chapter 9, Jesus was asked, who sinned? Was it this man or was it his parents that he was born blind? And what did Jesus answer to them when he was asked, who sinned, this man or his parents? Why is he blind? What did Jesus say? It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Again, another hard pill to swallow. Physical suffering is a global trumpet blast of the outrage of the moral evil of sin against God. Sobering. And some of those who suffer, some who suffer the most, are some of the godliest people. And how do we look at that? I think biblically, that they're suffering. And the suffering of the world would alarm us at our own sin against the holy God. However, in Christ, your sins are forgiven. They've been completely dealt with. So we, we, have, this, we have this tension here on why is everything out there terrible? Why is my life happening the way it is? Why do I feel like I've been subjected to futility? Well, in part, look at the reality of sin. That's a, that's a picture of what your sin is. But also we have to understand how sin is affected in our own heart. Those who place their trust in Christ, those who believe in him as the savior of the world, the Bible says that all of their sins have been completely dealt with. So don't be tempted to think, when you get cancer, was it because you yelled at your third grade school teacher? Is, is, there, something, is there something in the water? Are they sneak attacking me for my own sin? If you have placed your trust in Christ, the Bible says that all of your sins have been forgiven under the blood of a slaughtered lamb. No suffering of any Christian sin is punishment by God. Period. No suffering of any Christian sin. Suffering has another design, another purpose. No suffering of any Christian sin is punishment by God. Suffering has another design, another purpose. And, and I know this is sobering and it's difficult to wrestle with because we want things to just parallel each other. We have to come to terms with it. The, the totality of God's punishing of your sin has already been complete. Effectively, totally dealt with by the wrathful blow against the Son. So understand a second thing. God has subjected the world to futility in hope. And this futility, the collapse of the world into suffering, acts as a broadcast of the outrage of moral evil to sin to wake you up. Now, third thing to understand, third reason the world exists the way it does is so that you will understand the, the precious value of the gift that God has given you. Understand his precious value, it says in the outline. Why does the world exist the way it does? So that today Christians can express and display the profound God-honoring reality that Christ 
is more precious than anything they've lost. The gospel message says that Christ is the most precious gift that has ever been given. I vividly remember where I was in Charlottesville, August 2011, when my dad called and told me that after 24 years of his work, his bank officially failed and he was out of a job. I remember which parking spot I was in in Albuquerque, outside a coffee shop, when my mom called to tell me that my sister's husband left her for another woman. I remember the the cushion that I was sitting on at my sister's house, how it was randomly upside down when my mom was texting me, worried that my dad was having a stroke. I remember my dad waking up from brain surgery, groggy, crying, asking me, am I going to die? I remember the pile of books I was sitting by in my office when Brooke called and said that she was miscarrying after three years of trying to get pregnant. And I can point you to the the bare spot in our yard under a weeping willow tree where we buried some of our kids. Friends, as a dying man to dying men, understanding this won't stop life from its unrelenting pain, but understanding the value of the pure and true grace of God given to you in Christ will give you all the purpose you need to carry on and to hope like God calls you to do in Romans chapter 8. By trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the sustenance of your life, you show a world who is dying in misery that you have something more precious than anything, even as those precious people are who you've lost. A world with suffering and loss exists so that I, by not grumbling, might show that Jesus is more desired, more satisfying than the amazing things that I've lost. Psalm chapter 63, verse 3 says, The steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. What an amazing statement. The steadfast love of the Lord is better than being kept alive. Friend, do you believe that? Are you sick? Are you dying? You want to die. Do you just hope that tomorrow won't happen so that you can just be in the presence of the Lord? Say this to yourself, the steadfast love of the Lord is better than me dying, better than me suffering, better than me losing everything, better than me getting the news from the doctor. The steadfast love of the Lord is better than that. So the point of all Christian loss is to give us opportunity to say to a lost world in the most graphic and powerful way that Jesus is more valuable than what we just lost. Now, fourth and final thing to understand why the world is the way it is. Understand his predestined gift. This kind of world exists so that the greatest act of love in the history of the world could happen. This kind of world exists so that the greatest act of love in the history of the world could happen so that Christ could suffer and die. This world exists with its pain and sorrow to make it possible for Jesus to experience himself pain and sorrow and death. If this world didn't exist, Jesus would have no place to suffer and die. 
If there was no suffering, Jesus couldn't suffer. If there was no death, Jesus couldn't die. Or put another way, horrible things happen so that horrible things would happen to him. Trouble exists so that Jesus could be troubled in the Garden of Gethsemane. Pain exists so that Jesus could feel pain. Death exists so that Jesus could die. In the book of Revelation, chapter 13, you don't have to turn there, but in the book of Revelation, chapter 13, verse 8, it, this verse says that there, that there is a book that existed before the creation of the world. There's a book that, that existed before the creation of the world. Wrap your mind around that for the rest of your life. No paper, no ink, no pencil. There was a book. It existed. And this book had names in it. Names of redeemed people. Now, one cool thing, just as an aside, this, this book comes along in the vision that God has given John. This book comes along. And you need to understand that this book had been closed since before the foundation of the world. And if you're in Christ, your name's in it. Isn't that marvelous to think about? And then it's opened. The book had names of the redeemed people who are kept from worshiping the beast. And there's a name for that book. The book's name is called The Book of Life of the Lamb Who Was Slain. That's the title of a book. The Book of Life of the Lamb Who Was Slain. Titled Before the Foundation of the World, The Book of Life of the Lamb Who Was Slain. Slain is a very nice word for slaughtered. The slaughter of the second person of the Trinity was planned before the creation of the world. Why? Why would that be the center of God's plan? Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says that God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now question, do you believe that there is a better way to do this? You believe there's a better way God chose his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ, is there a better way to do that? A better way for God to show his love for us in our sin and our cosmic and moral treason against a holy God? Is there a better way for God to show his love for us in our sin than for his own son to die? This was his plan. There's no plan B if it's before the foundation of the world. There's no plan B if the book was closed and then later will be opened. There's no plan B. There's just a plan A. God wants to make his love supremely known. God wants to make his love supremely known. And how does he do that? He made his love supremely known by creating a world in which a son would enter that world and bear the curse and the pain and the suffering of the sin and death of the world. Now, some of you are familiar with Acts chapter 4. Turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. It says in verse 27 and 28, Acts chapter 4, verse 27 through 28 says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. 
And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Herod, who mocked Jesus, Pilate, who saved his own political sin by delegating responsibility elsewhere, the the Gentile soldiers who drove nails into the Savior's hands, the Jewish mob who called out continually, crucify him, crucify him. All four of these groups, these sinful acts, this Bible says, were predestined to take place. Meaning, before the foundation of the world, here's how it's going to happen. Son, my beloved son, now theologically this is called the covenant of redemption. When the Father and the Son say, that's what we'll do. We'll make our love known that way. And this is central to the reason for all existence. The the Son of God bearing the sufferings of the world to lift our sins, to bring us into everlasting joy, wonderful joy in the new heavens and new earth, glorifying God for His power and wisdom and love and grace. After our sin, though planned before time, the Son came and made something wretched, beautiful, in His own glorious sight. Now, my friends, I'm inviting you to believe these things, to be made strong by this, to have a vision of God, Christ, sin, suffering, cross, heaven, hell, so that it will be a ballast in your boat, so that when suffering comes your way, and it has, some of you it is, and it certainly will, when it comes, your soul will be filled with hope. And that one day, judgment will pour out on evil and the groom will place his bride in his new kingdom. Let's pray together. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we do not know why you do what you do in fullness. Your glory, your power, and your strength, and your will are a mystery to us. We pray that you would give us hearts that long for you appropriately, that look forward to your triumph, that ask your justice to be poured out on evil, and also hearts that just lament in times where we echo what Job said, what are you doing? God, we pray that as we live in a world that you have created, as we live in a world that is infected from the smallest molecule to the highest mountain, marred by sin, we pray that through that we would see your grace and mercy, which was undeserved in its pouring out on us. We pray that you would help us suffer in hope, 
Not because it makes things easier, but because you are making us more into the one who suffered greatly for us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.